0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Lisa Burke Show, where each week I have guests who either live in Luxembourg, they're associated with Luxembourg, or they're joining us from other countries. And this week is a week of that where we're going to meet the team behind the new Kavli Centre for Ethics, Science and the Public at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Their mission is to foster global conversations on the ethical issues of cutting edge science. So after our wonderful session with Sasha Kyo who is always joining us here and the news we will turn to Dr Richard Milne who is Kavli's Deputy Director. The director themselves is Professor Anna Middleton and we're also joined by Dr Catherine Galloway who is working with them to bring their stories to life. So welcome to all of you over there in Cambridge. Thank you. It's great to have you with us and Sasha we're going to turn to you first of all for a look back at the week's news. It's always busy. Hello how has your week been?
1: Well, actually, um, I mean, news is always busy, but it, I, I feel that there the weren't the big stories this week. Um, I mean, obviously, ongoing stories like the Ukraine war, but um, they, they weren't there weren't that sort of big breaking news story. You're right. It allowed little shoots of news to erupt. Yes, I saw, which so is quite nice. It's more quite of a nice. discussion of news, I thought of today. Yes. And, and
0: that's so lovely. And we're starting with some kind of long term stories with the energy transition for Europe, which is going faster than we anticipated.
1: I know. Good news for a change. Um, so, so yes, it turns out that Europe produced more uh, solar and wind power in 2022 than uh, we had to use gas. Um, so they produced 20 85% across Europe and fossil fuels uh, for gas were only 20%. And this is a very good news story. And according to, it's actually a British uh, think tank, Ember, who came up with the with the facts um, saying that actually it has the solar power and wind power has shielded us from an energy crisis. Um, you know, obviously, we all thought we were going to be in the biggest energy crisis ever after the sanctions against Russia. Uh Combined with a mild winter. Uh, but this, this has really, really helped. It's, so, it's really lovely news. And uh, sadly, it's probably happening because of the war in Ukraine. But at least the positive is turning from that. Yes, absolutely. And interestingly, I thought is that the Netherlands are massive producers of solar power, bigger than the, Spain. Which that is something I wouldn't have guessed in a quiz. Yes, seventeen percent of their power comes from from the Netherlands, um, and Spain is much lower. So that that's a little little aside. I fact. like that. I like these kind of random facts that are, yes.
0: in my opinion, not guessable. <laughs> now, moving to a completely different story, but a very important one: euthanasia has been in the news this week in Luxembourg.
1: Yes, so um, Luxembourg was one of the first countries to actually legalise euthanasia. They were the third country, I, th- I understand. And this was 14 years ago. It's been legalised. Um, but the head of uh, an association called My Will, My Path, uh, the president, was in uh, speaking to RTL this week and saying 14 years on, and it's still quite a taboo subject in, in Luxembourg. And in fact, the numbers are extremely low. Um, so I had a little look, you know, what... What other countries are doing and what Luxembourg, you know, what? how are you allowed to do it? So you do have to have, you know, you, you can't just choose to have it. You need to have an incurable disease or uh, an accident and you need a medical opinions um, in order to be able to do it. But the numbers are massively low. I mean, there were 104 cases uh, up to 2020, and only 20 cases in 2021 and 2022. Mm. Um, so I think it's interesting that although it is uh, legal, um, it's still Controversial, obviously. I mean, it was massively controversial back in 2008, but and yet it's, it still is. In yeah,
0: it's a really interesting topic. And I recently read a book by Belinda Bauer called Exit. Right. And when I saw this news story, it really reminded me of that book, which I recommend to anybody, by the way, uh, Exit by Belinda Bauer. Very, yeah. very interesting book, a, a slight twist on the idea of euthanasia. Well, a large twist on the idea of euthanasia. Um,
1: moving, we'll briefly touch on Corona in the sense that how it's affected schooling. Well, yes, yet another uh, report um, saying that children lost one third of a year um, of of during the pandemic uh, in, in terms of schooling and that that still two years on has not been recovered. So, you know, you can't just go back to normal. Uh, two years on, the, the children are still have this massive deficit of learning. And they said, you know, the, the report said that that will be the longest lasting legacy of the pandemic, actually. And of course, Luxembourg's Ministry of Education came out and said children in Luxembourg are doing just as well in tests um, as, the, as they were before. But um, I think in spite of test results, there are still huge learning deficits in, in Luxembourgish schools as well,
0: Yeah, I'm particularly sure amongst
1: primary school children, for whom, as we know, homeschooling was uh, incredibly difficult, wasn't it?
0: Very difficult for parents and children yes. alike. And yes. I, I know that personally. <laughs> Um, Now, moving on to another story, which is about weather. So, again, it's one of these long-term stories. Um, It's something that I suppose won't surprise
1: us. The fact that January was... Wet and warm. (laughs) Yeah, we've talked about it a lot, haven't we? Um, It was just dark, wet and warm. And, you know, again, then the uh, meteorological facts come out that it's, of course much warmer in January. Uh, The temperature in Luxembourg was 1.4 degrees above the average temperature. And, um, you know, and it just rained much more as well. So this this is a topic that we've discussed often—you know, no snow in the Alps, uh, more flooding. Yeah, we and, saw that with Davos. So, and clearly. yes, exactly. Mm. So um, it's absolutely the same, and also less sun than usual. Mm. Um, so we felt that 20, mentally, so, well. yes, exactly. So, generally, <laughs> it didn't just feel long; it genuinely was. You know, there was only twenty-seven hours of sun compared to fifty-two on average. So. I think that's affected people's mentality. So, let's hope February will bring a little bit more in the <laughs> yes. way of light, at least. Yes, I think global warming. A lot of people kind of obviously full of negatives but but only negatives but people kind of felt well I wouldn't mind if it was a bit warmer or a bit sunnier but actually with the extreme heat in the summer and now these wet warm winters I don't think people are enjoying that even. No no we're living
0: through it as it happens. Um, Now a piece of news that I think is fabulous the European Commission has unveiled plans to establish or at least improve some long-distance train routes across Europe
1: which is really really good which is great. Train travel is, is is really on on the up, isn't it? And especially these overnight trains have become mm-hmm. very popular. And um, they do want to do these long routes, say from uh, Brussels to Barcelona, Paris to Venice. But very sadly, Luxembourg, not Luxembourg is not on the map. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, I don't know if our, our, our fellow guests know, but we all whinge about the Fact that Luxembourg is really very badly connected, connected. <laughs> to other main European cities, so it takes three and a half hours on a train to Brussels, which you can drive in what two hours, two and a half, yeah. Um, so that is very sad. And the other big uh, gap I thought on the, on this map of of long routes was there was nothing east of Berlin. So um, literally nothing
2: exists in Eastern
1: <laughs> Europe. Not one big train line. And surely yeah. that 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 that's what you're really wanting to happen. Yeah, you want to kind of uh, explore more. Better connections,
0: more. yeah. Of course, explore more. Yes, uh, we won't rest on the point, but it is always a point of conversation as to why they can't improve the line between Luxembourg <laughs> and Brussels. <Yes>. So, <clears throat> uh, anyway, now we're, we're moving on to uh, another kind of long-term story, which is Eurostat has published new data yesterday, yesterday being Thursday, of course, we're recording this on Friday, showing Luxembourg households spend on uh
1: alcoholic beverages yes it's very high it's it's really high and um so 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 luxembourg is uh, is um uh, this is new data coming out of Eurostat. So they only spend 9% of household income on food and non-alcoholic drinks. And then 2.7% of household income goes on alcoholic drinks compared to 1% as an EU average. So these are huge disparities. But we reckon we've worked it out on the morning show because we kept, this morning it's more data came out saying Luxembourg also is... Top in the Europe as coffee drinkers. Oh, he said, this is really. I'm um, compared to Scandinavian countries or Italy. You would think would be much higher, and of course, it's the fact that um, Tax- coffee. Uh, yes, that we have very low taxes here on alcohol and things like coffee, tobacco. So a lot of people come into Luxembourg, don't they, buying uh, these things which are much cheaper. So we have what hundred thousand people coming in every day, cross border workers. They're skewing are you skewing stunts. our our data this is what we reckon cuz i said these are massive amounts the the coffee we cannot be drinking over 20 kilos uh, per person per year in coffee Um, so when you go to a petrol station in Luxembourg you see that it's there's these huge vats aren't there of coffee tobacco um, so we reckon that the data has been skewed and not everyone in the Grand Duchy is a secret alcoholic or or coffee drinker or coffee drinker
0: (laughs) (laughs) well we'll leave that there and I suppose we need to end on the wonderful stories about I mean I'm Going to bypass Brexit? Are you I, going to bypass oh, well, three, about, years okay, three years of Brexit? Okay, three years of Brexit. Okay, let's not bypass
1: that. Then. Maybe our guests have got a lot to say. about yes. regret. Guests: Anna, Richard,
0: Catherine. Have you any thoughts on three years of Brexit? A <laughs> dead silence. Don't get
1: this started,
0: Lisa. Don't get this
3: started. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Feeling the pain. Oh yeah, yeah, so, oh, yeah. Absolutely. It has affected a lot. So, uh, Sasha, I'm turning to you then. Three years since Brexit, what has Euronews said?
1: Well, um, obviously, the IMF came out uh, this week and talked about that the um, IMF expects um, the uh, economy to contract by 0.6% in the UK this year, which is even lower than Russia. And that's, I find, a very shocking fact and very sad. And obviously, you know, there have been strikes this week, but we also have uh, strikes uh, against pensions in France. And, you know, so, you know, we, we can't just say, oh, the, all these terrible things are happening in the UK. But it does coincide with 100 days of Rishi Sunak as prime minister. So he lasted longer. And, <laughs> um, <the> last <laughs> and, and, and an Ipsos poll saying 45% uh, of British people believe that Brexit is worse than expected. So it seems that uh, the word regret is not... Um, mm. Not just made up by European media, mm-hmm. say like that. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, also very interesting um, moves towards a possible agreement with Northern Ireland yes, and the EU. So that is a positive. That seems to be the noises coming from there seems to be that there is going to be some kind of agreement. Because that was always going to be very hard to figure out <laughs> with the border with the Republic. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yes,
0: yeah, And we're going to end on a positive note. We've got some big shows to talk about in the music realm of Luxembourg. Well, yes. Uh, yeah, we've talked and about near Luxembourg. Near Luxembourg.
1: Near, near Luxembourg. <laughs> so, um, you know, the Grammys are, the, are, are this weekend and uh, one of the potential big winners of Beyoncé, uh, has announced a European tour. Uh, she's in the US as well. And uh, we I had a look, so the closest would be Paris, Brussels and Frankfurt um, on her European tour. We also have Madonna, who's going to play in Antwerp and Paris, so that's close by as well. And then, of course... Um, Uh, for Luxembourg this is a big uh, excitement (laughs) is that Robbie Williams is not just coming for one night but he has sold out and he's going to come for two nights. And the ticket price is... And the ticket price is 130 euros ahead. Not cheap. Uh, Not cheap and yet they're selling like hotcakes so he still has appeal big time here um, because the other big concerts like the Arctic Monkeys um, and Lizzo they, they... you know, there's still tickets available. Which is interesting too, yeah. So yeah, that, and, yeah and these tickets are twice the price and um, yeah, he's added a second date. That's very good for Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the other thing that's interesting about um, uh, the Grammys,
0: for instance, is a, the Best New Artist Prize. A lot of the young artists, the new
1: artists have come up and they've emerged through TikTok. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That That is a, a huge... Factor now, isn't it? But then uh, the article also said, actually, of course, a lot a lot of people came through YouTube and and reality shows. So, but TikTok has has taken over, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I I'm not quite there yet with it. But (laughs) (laughs) oh, I've seen you on TikTok. Well, yes, yes, I have been there. But thanks to
0: our our lovely Emma. Yeah, yes, exactly. Our lovely Emma Baxter, who looks after all of that here, as always. Sasha, thank you so much, and of course, you'll stay with us for for the next section. of Thank you. I'm looking forward
1: to it. The Lisa Burke Show.
0: Now, turning to the Cavley Centre for Ethics, Science and the Public at the University of Cambridge. So, let's meet the team. The centre's director, Professor Anna Middleton, is a genetic counsellor with many years of experience guiding patients through the implications of inherited conditions. And understanding what glitches in their DNA might mean for them, their unborn child or other family members. In her academic work, she's passionate about expanding the public understanding of genetics so that everyone, regardless of their background or starting point, can join the conversation about what makes us us. And in September last year, Anna convened the first ever citizen jury in the UK on human genome editing, asking 21 people with rare inherited conditions in their families to consider whether a UK government should ever consider changing the law and allow certain serious conditions to be edited out of a person's family tree and the policy recommendations from that jury are published later this month. Cavali's deputy director Dr Richard Milne is like Anna a social scientist with a particular interest in the relationship between science and the public. His research focuses on how better conversations between career scientists and the general public all over the world might not only be better for society, but also for science itself, especially when delivering new or controversial topics. And his previous projects have included work on the ethics of Alzheimer's disease research, GM crops and health data sharing. At Kavli, he's leading research to understand how scientists can engage with the consequences of their work and conducting an international survey across 20 countries to find out how the wider public think about the social and ethical implications of cutting edge science in their everyday lives. And finally, we're joined by Dr Catherine Galloway, who is a journalist and writer and whose PhD research in comparative literature has expanded into a wider fascination with stories we tell ourselves and why we do so, why they matter out there in the real world. She leads all the creative translation and innovation work at the Cavley Centre, finding ways to conduct and connect diverse groups of people, from a scientific lab to a supermarket checkout queue, to get them talking and learning together. And your favourite, Catherine, you say is, what if? So welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you all here on this what I feel is a really important topic of conversation. And the whole point of my show is to make people think and to bring that conversation to their minds, which is precisely what you're doing. So I want to start with you, Anna, being the director of the center. I want to take you back to the second international summit on human genome editing at the University of Hong Kong in November 2018, where a scientist called Hei Yan Kui, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, presented his research, where he had edited the genomes of human embryos so that HIV-infected fathers would not pass on the disease to their children. But this revelation wasn't received well by the world.
3: Yes, and I was there. So I was invited to talk about um, what trustworthy science looks like from a public's perspective and our research on public attitudes towards genetics. And This Chinese scientist um, walked onto the stage uh, with pride in his eyes um, to announce that he had edited the first human embryos and led to the birth of the first babies with an edited set of genes. Um, And I was there and heard the the audible gasp from the audience. um, He really misread the room. Um, He was expecting a Nobel Prize, I think, and we were all absolutely shocked to the core um, because what he'd done was actually illegal in many countries of the world. And um, he really wanted to to push the the boundaries of the science, be the first scientist in the world to change the DNA of of human beings, thought that would be received uh, positively. And yet we were all completely stunned. Um, And... You know, this sort of ethics of what he'd done was sort of unpicked consequently um, in that the research hadn't been done with full ethical approval. The consent process um, was very dubious um, and the net result is that he ended up in prison and the families were in hiding. And actually, we still don't know um, how the, the children are that were born from this process. So it's likely that the editing that he did in, when they were embryos had off-target effects and so not only the gene that he was targeting which was to do with HIV resistance was um, altered it's possible that other genes were also altered and so we don't actually know if these children are well safe healthy uh, they're in hiding um, and this is really brings to the fore um, the risks of implementing technology before it's ready um and the consequences of and the impact for society so yes i was there i i saw him on the stage i was part of the debate and discussion about goodness me what's happened what are the implications of this and the knock-on effects around the world has just been enormous i mean immediately from that point policy was popping up all over the place saying stop we need urgent public debate around this, we can't move forward with this technology until we start to bring the people directly affected by it, public audiences, patient audiences. Um, but then at the same time as all of that, uh, there were patient groups starting to say, well, hang on a second, this technology could be used to treat and cure really serious life-limiting genetic conditions in my family. Um, hang on, let's before we go to extreme condemnation of this, maybe... This could be useful for some people. And so the conversations around the clinical application started to emerge. um, And then that led us to thinking around how do we bring public voices into the conversation, which public audiences and how do we do that? And that led on to our Citizen's Jury project.
0: Well, before that, I mean, it led on to the Kavli Centre for Ethics, Science and the public. So, I mean, this came about really because you and others noted that you're in a situation where we have the science. We're talking about frontier science that's there. It can sort of work but as you sadly said we don't know how those children are doing in this instance as one example but it could have good effects for families who are living with the trauma of having to pass on and they don't know that they're passing on these rare diseases to their children etc so the science is there but the ethics are playing catch-up so first take us to the concept behind the Cavley Center that you now lead.
3: Well the 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 idea is that um you know, a lot of science um, is explained and disseminated to public audiences at the end at the end of a process. So once the discoveries have been made, And uh, when, you know, sort of thoughts about, oh, gosh, this could have an impact on society. That's the point when public tend to hear about it. Um, Whereas what would happen if we brought public and scientists in conversation together much earlier in the process? And so the um, experiment that we're doing really is is to see if we connect discovery scientists with public audiences very early on in the pipeline of science, does that mean that together they can anticipate the potential future ethical issues that may come from the research? And if doing that um, means that there's a closer connection between scientists and society, then that will be a good thing. So that's the experiment. Is, is that a good thing? Does that mean that we, uh, when science gets to that translation point, we have anticipated where it could go and what public audiences think and want and feel about it then that will be a good thing for society so that's that's in a nutshell what the centre is doing is exploring how to do those connections in an evidence-based scalable way that works both for both for public audiences and also for scientists as
0: well. And the reason this is interesting for us standing here in Luxembourg today is because Luxembourg, as most people know, is a very small country with a very small population. And we probably couldn't put together a representative jury a panel compared to the population of the UK for instance to be able to really talk about this so we rely on other countries to almost do this research and then I'm sure our legislation would be reflected by countries such as well neighbouring countries France Germany of course but also the UK so then talk us through the citizens jury and how you put together such a jury
3: Yes, so we were very intentional about the audience that we connected with. So our citizens jury was not a broad public jury, which is often what you would want to recruit for most citizens jury projects. Um, We made the assumption that if um, genome editing, so the editing of human embryos was to happen in a clinical setting, that it would sit on the shoulders of existing genomic medicine services and those are um, services that have been available in um, a healthcare setting for families with inherited disease. And so it's possible now to go and get genetic testing and go and explore your family history of disease in a healthcare setting right now. And there are certain criteria that you need to meet in order to be able to access those services. Um, And they they're mostly they're catering for families with single gene disorders. And so for our citizens' jury, we particularly targeted existing families with single gene disorders. So uh, conditions like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. These are serious inherited conditions that run through families. And so we made the assumption that if um, editing of human embryos ever did come into the clinic, it would be relevant for these, these sorts of families. So we partnered with Genetic Alliance UK, which is a big umbrella organisation for all the smaller charities across the UK that consist of families with genetic conditions, um, and they helped us to recruit into the jury. And so we asked Genetic Alliance UK to help us find families um, with different genetic conditions. So the genetic conditions uh, span from young onset adult onset uh, range in severity of disease some of them are life-limiting conditions um, some of them not. Um, Some of the conditions mean that we had parents in the room who'd had two or three children who'd already died um, and the impact on the family was really really traumatic. Other conditions we had um, were more attached to an adaptation to life so um and and very much connected to identity so we had a a couple of people with with conditions where they were in a wheelchair but otherwise their life was not really impacted by um, having the genetic condition so it wasn't life limiting so we had a whole spectrum of people and families with different experiences of genetics um, and we selected from them covering the breadth of the UK, different ages. Um, and we had a particular focus on women because we know that more women come to genomic medicine services. so we had um, a, a slight bias to having more women in the room than men.
0: Well, that's really so that we've, interesting, we've, we've, the fact that you had that bias because you're really representing um, the audience, is not the right word, but the people who come and will be thinking about this, really deeply thinking about this. And I'm quite sure, not having been present, that they took this very seriously they were there as part of the jury representing the uk on human embryo genome editing and i'm quite sure the people who are carrying these diseases that could be passed on to offspring really thought about consequences catherine i know you that you were there what was the feeling in the room and i've seen a beautiful video that you sent as well that will be released later on um as part of a documentary it's incredibly poignant this work
4: it is i think during the four days of the full jury work I think everybody cried at some point. Um, there was so much emotion in the room and so much hard work in the room. People would determine, they were so conscious, even though we'd said, you just tell your story, you you think for you. They were so conscious that they were speaking for everybody who wasn't there, who couldn't be there, perhaps who'd already died or because they were simply too ill to come. We had three jurors who just at the very last minute couldn't come due to... Um, situations related to their conditions and so the jurors jumped straight into it from the beginning I mean I think it was sort of hour three on day one that they were already discussing what is suffering you know these huge questions ethical and moral and physical and emotional questions they didn't shy from any of it and they kept up that level of engagement right through to the end it it was exhausting it was exhilarating it was really humbling to watch
0: well you are a linguist and you are brilliant with words and you've just said there that incredible sentence what is suffering and also in a, in a chat we had earlier this week you speak about the importance of words when you're thinking about putting anything into legislation or coming together with a conclusion for this four-day jury stay the words like any or
4: serious so talk to us about the importance of language in this well, I think Anna can speak to how carefully the question that the jury was asked was constructed. Um, what was the yes, question? I mean, uh, what was the question?
3: Um so we were exploring are there any circumstances under which a UK government should consider allowing um editing of human embryos to cure serious genetic disease? Um and so we were not making the assumption that we should be moving in that direction. But we were asking, are there any circumstances where we might even consider it? Um, And the words uh, any circumstances were debated extensively um, because we got into all sorts of philosophical discussions about um, equity of access to services, the current state of of the NHS in the UK um, and the care that disabled people get through the NHS, health and social care. Um, and the need to address a lot of equity and access issues before you can even start to think about the application of of um, intense and novel techniques, um, and then also the discussion about well, what is serious disease? Because it's so um, it's so subjective. You know what you and I might think of as as serious um, is very different from somebody who's actually experiencing it, and this is why the 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 lived experience of these people and families was so so important to, so that we could hear for, for, through their own voices and through their own eyes and through their own lives what does serious disease actually mean to them um, and so yeah we we debated the meaning of suffering the meaning of serious the meaning of different different circumstances in different contexts and also the meaning of of our perceptions of when life begins I mean, it was just absolutely profound. You know, if we think from a Christian perspective, you know, life might be thought to begin right at conception, but from an Islamic perspective, it begins at 120 days into pregnancy, and then from the scientist perspective, you know, who are work- who are currently working on human embryos in a research setting, they're just cells and tissues, and there's no life or soul. But you know, so you know, the, the jurors were just thinking deeply. From loads of different perspectives, and actually,
0: nobody's got a truth on this. There's no universe truth. Well, um, this is really fascinating and it's so important. It, it again just shines a light on why it's so important to bring pu- this, the cutting edge of science into public discussion because it really digs down into the roots of who we are as people. And again, the subjective experience, because people living with a serious disease don't know another life. They And I'm quite sure when it comes to the question you ask them, they're thinking to themselves, well, if this happens, how does that affect the rest of the genome going forward in my lineage. So I don't know the answer to that. How does it, if, if you do edit a genome, how does that carry on? What are the other potential consequences? You mentioned with this Chinese doctor scientist that there may well be other consequences that we don't know about because we don't know where the children are.
3: Yes. So we made the assumption for our, for our jury that um, at some future time point, Um, that the science will be completely accurate so that it isn't now, but we're we're imagining and we're we're learning this from the scientists who are doing research in this space, that within three to five years ish, the technology will be accurate enough so that you can go into um, the early fertilised egg and change a single gene and no other genes would be affected and we're we're making that assumption that there will will come a future time point where it's safe and accurate and so that allows you to then okay move on from the uncertainties around the science to the ethical issues okay so if, if we're at that future time point well then what what would we change if we did want to go down that that route Um, and would this be focused on serious inherited disease or what's the blurring of the boundaries between that and enhancement? Um, Because obviously that's very, very subjective. Um, But also the basic premise was that if you alter the the genes in in an early embryo, then that means that all of that embryo, child, adults, future children will have the same edited um, genes as well. Mm -hmm. So it would cure treat something from that, that time point that would be passed on for all future generations.
0: So it's an enormous question. I want to turn to you now, Richard, because uh, you're working on, well, I want to ask you what deliberative democracy is, but you're also working with the, the globe in mind, with everybody in the world in mind. But of course, you know, when you make these decisions and one country might set up one law, it could lead to medical tourism. So uh, we're, we're not sitting on an island here. We're, we're talking about a global consensus here in a way so firstly talk to us about what deliberative
2: democracy means well i'm yeah i think it was interesting that you um because you started off in your in the news segment at the top of the show with the kind of uh conversation about one particular type of democracy which was around the referendum yeah. Brexit,
0: <laughs> oh yes
2: um, which um, yeah we are living with the consequences of and it's um and it's a very specific kind of model of how we make decisions as a society you know we we ask a question we assume that people have um yeah, rightly or wrongly we assume that people maybe have the facts to make to make that decision and we and we give it a yes no and um yeah on a kind of whole population level and it's what what we were doing with the citizens jury and that kind of broader model of deliberative democracy is a very different way of thinking about how we make decisions as a society and how we come to kind of reasoned conclusions whereby. So, yes, the voice of the public or patients is is at the very heart of that, but it's also a kind of process through which they have the opportunity to talk to scientists, ethicists, people who are living with with genetic conditions, people who are experts in in um, in various different religious perspectives, clinical pers- cl- cl- clinical implementation, all of these different things that are really important in how we make decisions about how do we want to use this science and technology in the future, and so at the end of that process, coming to a set of recommendations that are yeah based around this model of deliberation, and obviously I think yeah like you said I mean this is this, we're not well um we are doing our best in the UK to be an island, but we are also connected <laughs> to to everybody else in the world as much as we, um, yeah, yeah. So the the Brexit conversation at the start has, uh, has, has wormed its way into my brain. I'm, kind of I'm so
0: sorry. Back.
2: But we are still connected to the rest of the world. And the decisions that we make in the UK um, do exist in relation to all those other places. And I think that you know, the other story that that you mentioned around euthanasia and how like one country will make a decision that reflects its values and the values of its people um, may be completely um, incomprehensible to people who live in another country. Yeah. And so when we're thinking about what do we want as a society, how do we want to use these technologies in the future, it's important that that yes, the UK makes decisions that reflect the values of the UK population, but also that other countries make decisions that reflect the values of their populations, um, and that then we think about at a kind of supranational, kind of global level, like how do we, how do we try, how, what's the kind of compromise between all of those? How do we respect that that difference, but also um, move forward in a way that is, yeah, is kind of ethical and practical? And okay. so yeah, so the deliberative work there's there's similar juries that are happening around the world that we've been partners on one in australia there's one that's taken place in the netherlands as well and and that these are kind of coming to conclusions around how we should use gene editing that are um, yeah, that, that may well be different from from the one in the uk
0: well you mentioned euthanasia and of course that was a topic that sasha brought into the news uh conversation just at the top of the show that we've seen has led to medical tourism i mean i don't particularly like that phrase but Effectively, people go to certain countries in order to be able to have that. Um, and, and that's why it's important also to think about the global conversation. But of course, I understand that different countries have different values. That's absolutely evident. How do you think about the idea when it comes to medical tourism?
3: Well, it's, it's, a, it's um, a point that our jurors discussed in, in detail, and they came to the conclusion that where there's money and services, people will travel for it um and that of course creates an a real inequity um and we, we and we already see medical tourism with the assisted reproductive technologies um so if you've got the money and the inclination um and you live in the UK and you've got five sons and you want to have a daughter then you would go overseas to have you know you could go overseas to access a clinic that could enable you to um, select to have a, a daughter that's not legal in the UK but you would get, you know travel for that and um, you know that's just the reality of the world that we live in and it, and it, and it creates um, an inequity and services that end up being available to the rich um, mm-hmm. which of course is of you know when we're thinking about the UK context with a nationally funded health service that's free at the point of care um, you know we're thinking deeply about you know what's what's ethical and reasonable for people to actually access on on the NHS.
0: Yeah that's Um, a very important additional point actually the cost of it.
3: Yes yes and and and, and I don't know I mean sort of working in this space um, I, I feel that the, the promise of the technology can be incredibly misleading. And the reality of what we're talking about here, particularly with assisted reproductive technologies, is that it, it, it sounds so simple. Oh, OK, so I can go overseas and, uh, you know, um, and buy the embryo that I want. But actually, the, you know, it, it the reality of, of going through an IVF process particularly is that it's really, really tough, particularly on the woman, you know, because... You have to take um, the drugs to stimulate the ovaries. You know, that they, they can be really quite horrific um, to overproduce eggs. You then have to go through a surgical procedure to have the eggs removed. Um, you may not even create enough eggs. And then you have to finish that cycle and start again. And then say you do create enough eggs, then they are fertilised. They may not all fertilise. So then that's the end of that cycle. And then you have to start again. Um, or if you get to the point where the eggs are fertilised, then you have three embryos. Um, then you test them and none of them have got the genes that you want so they're all discarded. I mean the whole process is incredibly painful emotionally, physically, practically the success rate is is really low. So when we talk about okay well we'll select an embryo it sounds so easy in you know in theory but in reality it's actually incredibly difficult. so um there's a lot of thought that needs to go into, really grounding the practicalities in people's minds so that when they're making choices to go off and, you know, access these technologies overseas that they understand what's actually involved.
0: And I think Catherine, you may have wanted to
4: come in. Yeah, I was I was just going to sort of place all of those questions into some kind of context, which is the question that we come back to often, I mean daily at the Cavalier Center, which is what kind of future do we want? and who gets to decide. So if we look at any technology, whether it's gene editing or other areas that we're interested in, such as big data or artificial intelligence and and things that are coming down the pipe now that are actually already here in our world, what kind of future do we want, do we, the people, want, and are we involved? And I suppose that's the work of the Cavalier Centre that we take these big issues put them on the table and say right everyone needs to come into the conversation like right now before it hits us and when we very first started this work i remember richard telling me an absolutely excellent story about henry ford the maker of of the ford car and he famously said, you know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. (laughs) And people don't always know what they want. And at the same time, they weren't asked. And if we look now at the prevalence of the car and how we've completely trashed our environment and we've got big motorways everywhere and et cetera and traffic jams and pollution, and maybe we weren't so wrong to have wanted a faster horse. But the point is, you know, we needed to have had a moment to ask, that question and we're situated at a moment where we can ask that question more more broadly than it's ever been asked before on these technologies that are coming it's too late for the car but it's we're on course for gene editing and we're on course for artificial intelligence and we're on course for big data we can we can still change the narrative and i think that's really important I think that's
0: so well put. Uh, We won't go into the gene editing of horses. (laughs) Although I'm sure, well, I know it happens, of course. But um, I I also want to talk to you, Catherine, about uh, you're so great at this. Uh, Even from the few conversations we've had, I can tell that it lives inside you how you change that narrative. And so, you know, we're talking about hugely important topics. I I think they're really important, but not everybody thinks they're important. Some people don't want to be involved. So how do you get people involved. How do you talk about these issues so that other people will listen? I know that's sort of your job, but I mean, even in our chat, we were talking about a soap opera where they, they talk about certain issues that don't affect most people, but it brings it out into the public conversation. So how do you go about
4: getting these issues into general conversation? I suppose I think my advantage in the in the team at Kavli is that I am, I am that public. I am that public who might not have gone to a science festival who who didn't wasn't good at science at school who finds it all a bit scary and who just wants to go hang on a minute I would like a faster horse thank (laughs) you um and so in a way that's what made me useful in this space because I sort of stand for the everyday and the way that people might access that and as a journalist I'm used to talking to all sorts of different people and caring very much that information is communicated properly and well and to listening and you know Anna has a background in genetic counselling Richard is really interested in hearing what people have to say all over the world and and embedding himself with different communities and listening hard as a sociologist and so we all bring that interest in dialogue and listening more than we're talking um, to the centre and I think that's really important because Science very often tends to be in broadcast mode. You know, these are the facts. (laughs) This is our data. Agree with it or not. And there's no room for that space of saying, well, hold on a minute. I don't quite get that. And why should I care? And that's what we would like to encourage. And so one of the sort of creative things that we've come up with is called the Hopes and Fears Lab. And we thought, what if, here's my favorite question, what if we took the science out of the lab. We took the whole word science out and we made it about human emotion because we're all expert in our own emotions. We've all got hopes, we've all got fears, and we are all they are all legitimate. And so supposing we put the scientists and the public together and did a kind of conversation experiment. Um, so the scientists were like heard the word experiment and the public heard the word conversation and they both were <laughs> like, okay, we'll give that a go. And um, and to the scientists' horror, They weren't allowed to lead with the data. They weren't allowed to hide behind their slides. They weren't allowed to, you know, do a beautiful diagram. They had to sit and talk about their emotions, their hopes and fears surrounding their own work. What happens if I go forward with my gene editing research, which is so exciting and so cutting edge? Would I be worried if my wife or partner was offered that? You know, what would I feel? But I I think... Eight scientists in a room to talk about that. And and the public, we said, well, what would you feel if you were offered that? What, How would you feel? And it was an experiment and I was very nervous. Um, But within about 10 minutes, I could see that they were really engaging on both sides of the table. We made the lab out of cardboard as well, which helped. Didn't look like a lab.
0: Oh, I love it. I I really love the name of it. The Hopes and Fears Lab. This is fabulous. I was just going to say, I know scientists sometimes get a, a rough deal, but sometimes scientists go into a certain type of work because they have seen problems in their families or they have got some experience of it affecting them. I mean, Anna, for instance, you work in the field of genetics. Why did you choose this, for instance?
3: Why did I choose it? Yes. Um, yeah, well, so I have a family history of a couple of different genetic conditions. and So there we go, you're a point in... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I was always struck by um, how hard it was in our family to talk about them um, and how there was so much um, sort of stigma and guilt and blame and fear and hope. And, you know, there's such a mixture of feelings attached to them. And that's what, so families and... Uh, communication was what drew me to genetics and then that's what drew me then on to psychology. Well, that's um, wonderful.
0: Yeah. So you, re- so Anna, you really are a, an example of of the type of eight scientists that Catherine brought together with with people. And I'm quite sure scientists really do want to see their work put to proper use and to be part of that conversation. I think scientists are often scared of that conversation. Um, they don't know how to navigate that conversation because so often what they say can be, as you said, broadcast in a headline without the nuances behind it, and that that makes them worry sometimes. Now, Richard, um, as was mentioned by catherine just now you are a sociologist you're looking at these global conversations so how does the conversation you're having with the jury in the uk and just in general with the work at the cafe center how does that compare with the conversations you're having globally
2: um that's an interesting question yeah um so i think one of the things that that we've done over the last few years and that we're going to be doing in in the years to come is is running um some kind of large surveys around kind of you know what is it that that matters to people when they're thinking about genetics when they're thinking about their kind of health data um and then understanding how that links to yeah to their values and to the thing to the things that matter to them and to where they are in in the world and to where they are in the societies that they're in as well um and so we've so trying to kind of understand how those how those vary is is a big part of what we do because it's it's a big part of understanding that kind of global picture for science um and so if you and so the work that we've done over the last couple of years for example around around genetics you get these fascinating patterns in terms of when we ask people are they how willing would they be for um people to use their their genetic data in research or in care you know you have these kind of standard patterns around the world. Nobody trusts companies. Everybody, everybody's suspicious of people who are um who are making profit potentially out of the use of data. But how much they trust companies and how much they mistrust companies varies really does vary around the world. And it particularly varies, you know, depending on what, what your health system looks like. For example, if you have a lot of companies that are involved in delivering healthcare, then actually your data going to a company is less is less scary, is less um is less unusual. And then we kind of look as well about how these com- some of these countries pair together. And then we find kind of really interesting patterns, you know, like so, um, so Spain and Mexico, for example, in our research come out really similarly in terms of like how they trust, um, in terms of the things that they think are important when they're trusting somebody with their data. Or Portugal, just pause there
0: po- well I mean we're talking about language similarities here of course Portugal Brazil, uh, Spain, Mexico. do you think it's it's cultural or may I throw it to open to Catherine as well do you think it's a linguistic thing? Does that change how we think?
2: I I think it's a really interesting question so this is where this is basically where where you get into that thing where you, you ask these research questions and they just raise really interesting questions again so is it just something about the way that people talk about trust? um in in different languages or is it something that's a kind of shared cultural kind of basis and so that's where we move from doing some of the kind of survey work these kind of big samples of kind of thousands of people answering questions for over 15-20 minutes to then thinking about like how do we go and spend time with people get them to talk to us for a couple of hours or go and kind of yeah be embedded with them for for weeks or months to try and understand what it is that's actually going on in that in that setting and then doing the same things with scientists as well. So like, how did the scientists <laughs> think about the public? How does that question about, you know, what does wider society think about what I'm doing? Or is this the right thing to do? How, like, when do they pop up in the kind of everyday doing science as like as a job? That, if they do, um, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Well, there's another element of this, which is, of course, that um, all of this at some point has to be thought about in law, it has to be thought about by the government. So again, how do you put this to a government so that they will listen to it? And they're obviously busy people. So how does it even register on their agenda of what's important? Where does this come? Because you're talking about really big issues here. We're talking about genome editing, we're talking about AI and big data. They're they're all pressing issues, but they're not urgent issues. So uh how do you talk to the government so that they will listen?
3: Yeah, I've been I've been thinking about this Particularly at the moment with the outcomes from our citizens' jury. And um the link to government is directly through the policymakers who actually write the wording um, that go into the bills that government discuss and parliament discusses. Um so the the route in is is through policy. Um and and then the lobbying would then start. And so then that's the connection between um particularly the citizens jury between our jurors, the policymakers, and then the particularly the charities that would advocate for the for the 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 patients. So if we wanted to which we do want to bring the voices of our citizens jurors in our project to governments, then the next step for us is to Um, Connect with policymakers who have that um, direct link to government. And that's that's what we're going to be doing next. That's what this year's task is, is making those connections.
4: Catherine. But right from the beginning of the Kavli Center, what we've all completely agreed on is that the way we communicate has to be as smart as the science itself And by smart, I mean intelligent and grounded in fact and proper research, but also incredibly cool to look at, incredibly attention grabbing and easy to digest. And so that's why alongside a 70 page report from the Citizen's Jury, we're also releasing a 20 minute film and a 10 minute version of that film and even a three minute version of that film. So that at whatever level you come in, if you want to know what was it like to be in that room, what does this document Mean, we've got the the other kind of communication to access as well. So if a policymaker does nothing else but watch the three minute film, I can guarantee they'll want to go and read that seventy that seventy page document.
0: That's wonderful. So I've got uh, not many minutes left, but I've got three questions. I hope to get through. So they're quite big questions, but I need short answers. So here we go. Imagine you're one of those policymakers now. Will our children be offered the chance to genetically modify their children? in the sense that genetically modified their genome. Yeah, I imagine That's a short yes. answer. <laughs> yes. Um, and if so... In some circumstances. What did you say? So what did in, you say some, to-
2: in some circumstances.
0: Oh, yeah. and then we're period. going to go down the rabbit hole of what some circumstances <laughs> means. Okay, you're leaving that wide right open there. And if that happens, how will this affect the lineage and evolution if we eradicate certain diseases?
3: We don't know. I, and I think it's important for me personally to say, I think it will happen. Personally, I don't agree with it. <laughs> um, but yes, it, we don't know the long term impact. Uh, what we do know is that um, genes often have multiple functions um, and there are often all sorts of downstream effects that we don't yet know. So really interesting genes you know, linked to offering resistance against HIV are also linked to intellectual pathways as well. That's just an example of one. So,
0: yeah. It's too connected for us to be able to understand all of those nuances within them. Uh, My final question, then I have to bring it back to philosophy, because so much of this is connected to philosophy, and you mentioned it yourselves before. Can you edit out suffering?
2: No.
4: No. No. We're all saying no. And and also an edit would only affect that one individual person. Whereas what I really got from the citizens jury overhearing one really intense table discussion is, well, hang on, whose suffering can we talk about? Because what about a parent watching a child suffering? What about a wider family dealing with bereavement? You know, this one condition that you are editing one person, one embryo to eradicate the suffering is much wider than that. It's a ripple effect. You can never take away pain. You can never take away suffering. And actually, should you? Probably not. Suffering's part of the human condition.
3: Yeah.
0: Oh, well... I think the work that you're doing at the Cavalier Centre in Cambridge is incredible. I can't wait to hear what this report says. I loved the 10 minute video and I'm sure if you have any more videos, we can release them and we can talk about them. And the work you do is so important for countries like Luxembourg here because we can't really put together that sort of jury, that panel discussion. We can do it in our own way, but we have to kind of be a barnacle on somebody else's story (laughs) because um, it it, it, uh, it really reflects uh, much more than uh, the UK. OK, it's reflecting the stories of much of Western Europe. I, I won't go too much farther than Western Europe because I'll get into a conversation with the sociologist Richard who will talk about the variations of language and things. But uh, have you any final thoughts that you would like to send to our Luxembourg and international audience here? We could do a jury in Luxembourg. There's nothing to stop you. There. Oh, please come along. Please. We would love to host you here. I will put you in touch with the, the people I think would be interested in this, the, the right people, let's say.
3: It's it's easy to do. Yeah, so let us
0: know. That's a great idea. And Richard, you will have great fun, along with linguist Catherine, on the language variation we have here in Luxembourg. Because most people,
1: not myself, most people speak at least, what would you say, four languages here? Yes, but, um, but maybe, yes, you miss a lot of nuances then. Exactly. Exactly. On a discussion like this, it would be super interesting.
0: Yeah, well... All of you, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for everything that you're bringing into the public domain. And I wish you the very best of luck with your future work.
2: Thank Thank you. you very much.
1: Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio.